Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. All over this country, there are quiet heroes who do important work that enhance people's lives, and particularly people who need a voice. And uh, no one fits that description better than John Bowman, the president of the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law based here in Chicago. He's waged a 40-year battle in the courts and legislatures on behalf of people living in poverty and fighting to get out of poverty. I sat down with John recently in Chicago to talk about the war on poverty that he's waged over 40 years and uh, where we stand today. John Bowman, my Old friend, it's great to have you here. We've known each other, what, 40 years? I think so, probably. Right here on the campus of the University of Chicago, we met playing co-ed basketball. Right, at Uh, at the old Idenoise Hall. Yes. It was fun. So, which is right down the the street here. Uh, But tell me about, uh, so I know the history after, and we'll get into it. Tell me about the history before. I know you grew up uh, here. Yeah, I was area. born in uh, the west suburbs in Melrose Park, grew up in Oak Park. Uh, my father was a teacher at a, a Lutheran school out there in River Forest, and he was the musician of the church. So that's, <laughs> and, that's and, my and, and And what's in, until very recently, right? How, how old yeah. is your dad now? He's 99. Uh, <laughs> until like two years ago, he was still writing music, good music, uh, you know, to choir music, some secular, but mostly uh, sacred music. And uh, it's good stuff, and uh, it's fun. I still sing in the choir there. <laughs> and I started ha- that 40 years ago to basically, you know, make him happy. And this, But this um, uh, faith is a big part of your family's Yeah, it story. is. It's the family business, I think you'd call it, because, you know, both grandfathers, 10 or so uncles— uh, my older brother, they're all Lutheran pastors. Uh, some are, some are uh, seminary professors, and others are were, you know, just parish uh, preachers. Uh, I never so, asked you this. When did, wh- how did they get here in the first place, uh, they, the Bowmans? Uh, yeah, they came—my name's spelled funny because they came from a part of Germany that's across a river from Holland. And we were there last April. My, my wife and I were there visiting our daughter, who was uh, in Europe for a year. And uh, we saw the farm my grandfather grew up on before he came here in 1890. And there's this hill with sheep on it. And you climb that hill, and it's the North Sea. So the, it's not mm-hmm. a hill. It's the dike. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and the rest of them all came over in the 1840s, I think. So, mm-hmm. uh, But they're all Germans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Lutheran people, lots of clergy. Uh, I didn't want to do that. Uh, but it's sort of those were all the role models. Yeah, but Nobody why knew how to make money? Why didn't you? Why did? Why didn't you want to do it? Um, 
you know, it was, uh, I wanted to do something else, uh, but I also, it, it never sort of crossed my mind not to do some sort of career of service, right, to uh, uh, use your talents to, to help people. And you, you went to Valparaiso. Uh, yeah, uh, so that was the Lutheran University. So yeah, I went in Indiana. To, yeah, and, uh, th- you know, there was a lot of upheaval, even in little Valparaiso, the... Early administration 70s, building burned 60s, in the wake 70s. of the Kent State Cambodia yeah. thing. There was campus problems, uh, but there was a lot of idealism, a lot of stick it to the manism, you know, kind of punky um, counterculture type things. Uh, so that sort of wedded with the sort of ingrained family business, and uh, uh, to to mean that when I went to law school, uh, I got out of there in 75 and came here to Hyde Park, uh, the career was going to be some sort of public interest law. Did you go into the law with that in mind? Yeah, but a very vague version of it. Uh, it wasn't that organized of a person when I was an undergrad. <laughs> and uh, uh, but I, So going to law school had the twin virtues of training me for something, and I'm really much better at it because much more linear than undergrad, where you just sort of take courses. and uh, uh, But also it delayed for three years what I would do when I grow up, which I still wonder sometimes. And when you <laughs> came to uh, Chicago, uh, did you had you already gotten the job at the Legal Assistance Foundation? Yeah. Uh, well, I came back from law school, took the bar exam, uh, and then about a month after school, I got the job at the Legal Assistance Foundation. Um, and so I started uh, there in September of 75, uh, working on the west side and then in Uptown for five years. And what were you doing? Uh, that, you know, for the first 10 years, so five years in Uptown, then five years in Englewood, uh, pretty much, you know, sort of typical high-volume storefront legal aid, you know, 50, 60, 70 files at a time, all kinds of cases, wide variety of cases. I got a really strong exposure to all the different kind of factors of what it means to be poor and why people stay poor. And we should point out these were – Uptown's a little bit different now, but uh, Englewood is still a very impoverished uh, neighborhood. And uh, Uptown was a little bit different then. It's always been the different community, (laughs) right? It's a huge melting pot. Back it's then, a community it, on the north side of Chicago. Yeah, and it it sort of resembles uh, from someone from your uh, upbringing, sort of a Queens type uh, mm-hmm. thing with all the different varieties of Hispanic people. In addition to Mexican and Puerto Rican, uh, there were a lot of Native Americans there, uh, a lot of the urban Indians. I had clients from Pine Ridge Sioux, Menominees, and Chippewas from up north. Uh, people from Oklahoma. Uh, a, a guy for, who was a Creek Indian from Oklahoma, whose name was Charles Horse. <laughs> Charlie Horse. So uh, I get it. You got it. I got it. Yeah. So, um, and and you said you learned uh, what it meant to uh, to be poor. What did these cases? Yeah. What kinds of cases were you? Were you doing so? All kinds, uh, you know. Certainly, an array. I be, sort of gradually developed a specialty in public benefits, so welfare, Medicaid, food stamps, but also uh, uh, debt collection. You know, uh, consumer cases, housing cases, civil rights cases. Um, 
there were two two sets of crises that sort of showed people declining from the middle class into poverty. One was the uh, the blossoming of the of the AIDS epidemic, and I would get a client who'd come in and be completely destitute, living on the train, you know, driving around the city on the train, uh, sort of in a state of dementia, but ineligible for Medicaid because he still had a boat. You know, that kind of thing. And then a similar crisis in the early 80s uh, during the Reagan years when there was a recession pretty much as bad as the Great Recession we just had, which which saw the closure of the steel mills and the big factories on the south side. That's when I was in Englewood. That was the furthest south office of uh, the Legal Assistance Foundation where I worked. So we got most of that activity. It was an immense foreclosure crisis and a kind of a sucking of net worth out of uh, working class communities and and uh, African American communities on the south side, and the big Mexican community on the southeast side. So this work, you, you talked about it as service. Uh, you saw uh, this. You had a ministry of your of your own. Well, I suppose you could say that, but yeah. uh, it was also it was also political, and it was also just uh, a sense of trying to to make it <laughs> fair. Um, in, 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 the more I got involved in the uh, policy side and system side of this, you know, in, in those 50 or 60 cases, I always had five or six or seven that were a bigger project. In those days, usually uh, law reform litigation. Um, and uh, you, you saw that in all of these subject matters, Powerful interest groups were contending for the ear of the policymakers, you know, the bankers, the the real estate industry, the quick credit industry, et cetera. Um, and, and, and nicer people like hospitals and, and organized doctors and so on. And for people in poverty not to have a seat at that table, it just wasn't fair. And they were all represented by lawyers. They were all represented by experts. Uh, and that, that, Increasingly, it became what I was interested in trying to provide, uh, and that 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 aspect of equal access to justice. And le- and you you became a very well known figure in the state capital in Springfield, where a lot of policy uh, was being made. Had had the Legal Assistance Foundation not had a presence there uh, before that? Um, no, they they were there. We gradually got more and more into policy advocacy, lobbying, if you will, uh, relationships with the executive branch and regulations and so on uh, during the 80s. Uh, actually, ironically, it was a, uh, a reaction in part to the Reagan administration's effort to uh, curb that, to, to force uh, – those of us in federally funded legal aid to not do that. Well, in fact, at the end of the day, I I, th- I think Newt Gingrich was deeply involved in this, but they yeah. did they did cut it pro- off. Pro- prohibit you from any kind of lobbying. That uh, was in 1996. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the the big uh, ways to affect policy were class action litigation and uh, lobbying and administrative rulemaking and organizing. Those, that collection of activities was forbidden to uh, organizations that took federal funds for legal aid. And that's when I left that organization because it was a pretty good 
job description of exactly what I was doing. Yeah, you were sort of Exhibit A. Of it was what they yeah, were the John Roman Unemployment Act of 1996, <laughs> and so that's when we started the Shriver Center. And um, the Shriver Center actually was a reconfiguring uh, of a pre-existing organization called the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services. That was actually a, a part of the National Legal Aid infrastructure. It was the communications hub. It happened to be located in Chicago. That was defunded in that same Gingrich budget. Uh, so they were going out of business, but they had a board, you know, a, a nonprofit status, empty offices with computers, a board that understood the work. Uh, and so good infrastructure. And so our two goals in starting the Shriver Center was to perpetuate the national communications function for legal aid, public interest lawyers around the country, and to perpetuate the policy advocacy for poor people in Illinois. Let, let me ask you, uh, having lived through that era, yeah. uh, how profoundly did that uh, Reagan era uh, change uh, policy as it relates to uh, to people who are poor and people who are struggling? I think it started in Reagan. Um, it it the pace quickened actually under Clinton uh, with the influence of a, a, you know, dealing with a, a hard right Congress. But Clinton's own attitude was kind of a, a conservative view. It, it sort of was the gradual flipping of the uh, public policy view that was uh, in the war on poverty, uh, which is 50 plus years ago. Uh, under uh, when Johnson announced that war in his State of the Union speech about seven weeks after the assassination. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, in that speech, I just had a chance to read it again. Because At the of, University of Michigan, I think he made yeah. And and uh, Yeah, and it was... Um, um, it, it was the speech not only announcing the war on poverty, but announcing the intent that he made good on to actually pass the Civil Rights Act. So if you, if you count from, from then... It's this linking of the fight against poverty with the with the fight for racial equity uh, that that a big part of the story of poverty in America is about race. Um, and the reason I, I, I had occasion to read to read that over again is because it, it came back to me when I was reading uh, Peter Edelman's new book. I don't know if you've seen it no. uh, called Not a Crime to be Poor, but it's about all this stuff that surfaced after Ferguson, um, the fines and fees that people People get a fine for a minor traffic offense. If they can't pay it, they're held in jail. Then there's a fee for being held in jail for the linens and the meal you get. Uh, then it, you're you're fined for the expenses of the court process that convicted you. Uh, people are in jail for a minor offense for, for weeks, accumulating thousands of dollars worth of debt. Now you've got a debt. Now you've lost your job. Now you've got a criminal record, so you can't get another job. And these are almost all black people. And this is why Ferguson was a powder keg. It was the, it was the, the way that uh, the people of color in that community were being held down in order for the police and the courts to fund themselves, which traces back to the tax cut ideology, right? If you, if you defund government services... But the public still expects the services to continue. You've got to pay for it somehow. This is how they were paying for it. You know, uh, Tom Dart, the sheriff of Cook County, runs the largest county jail in the country, I think, uh, here in Cook County, was a fellow at the Institute of Politics here and, and was at 
uh, yeah. joined me on this podcast and uh, talked about the people who were sitting in his jail, uh, sometimes for the most minor of infractions, yeah. for for months or more, or for because being they couldn't or be. Well, that he discussed as well. Said he runs yeah. the world's largest um, uh, mental health facility, right? But um, but he also talked about the fact that people uh, sat there because they couldn't afford bond. Now they've tried. They're they're trying to address that now. But, he has reduced uh, the jail population. Actually, he's he's one of the one of the better ones. He's a, a brighter light in that firmament around the country. Yeah. So, what did you learn in that? Um, you, you've talked about the relationship between race and poverty. What are the other truths that you've learned uh, after forty years of uh, I, of doing this work? Now, I want to pick up the narrative about Shriver and some of the battles that you've fought. Sure. But, uh, as long as we're on the subject of of of, of sort of the so, root causes of poverty, yeah, uh, race is 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 a big factor, and it's it's more than just the fines and fees thing. It just that that's mm-hmm. what it came to mind. Um, it's also um, isolation, economic isolation. So you can be in a thriving city like Chicago, but in a part of town where there's no economic activity. Um, and the deterioration of public education is another feature. But I, I think the the theme that runs over the top of all that, and that gets us back to the war on poverty notion, is that there is a vital role for government. And it's not just about spending. Actually, that State of the Union message announced the most austere budget since 1951. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a, a spending spree. The war on poverty it was about priorities, but the but the the role for government is to support important programs to enable success. Uh, but it's also about the government's role as a referee, an insurer, a guarantor of fairness. You know, so that the opportunities are real. Uh, so that someone who works hard can, in fact, make their way up without being blocked by artificial things like discrimination or like these schemes, these uh, criminal justice schemes that uh, we were talking about a moment ago. Um, and that's the big conversation right now in American life that's 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 hanging fire, right? The role, why do we pay taxes? Why does it matter to people who aren't poor that we take care of people who are? You know, those themes from Obama's famous convention speech when he was a, a new senator. Uh, the, um, you know, the reason that speech was so popular, in addition to its artful, you know, composition and delivery, is because I think people are starved for it. I mean, that's a message that can be popular if it's delivered and, and sustained and has the right kind of leadership behind it. The, the message about community, the message about yeah. making opportunity, yeah. uh, making good on the and that promise there are of opportunity. important kinds of spending that, that we need to do, right? And um, the, that uh, it, it isn't about whether government is big or small. It's about whether it's effective and, and driven in the right direction. You mentioned uh, the, the the Clinton years. That was when welfare reform uh, took place. Yes. I want to talk in a second about your role in that because you actually worked with Barack Obama on yeah. that issue uh, in the legislature in Illinois. Uh, but the 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 conflict that's gone on since the '60s in our politics has been. Uh, this notion uh, that um, 
you know, and I, I don't want to create a caricature or a straw man, but, I, but that, that undeserving people, many of the minorities were getting benefits and that hardworking people, mainly not minorities, were paying for them. And yeah. that, that's the sort of, that is the kind of caricature that has uh, animated our public debate for, and you know we have someone sitting in the White House who's um, exploited that to yeah. to uh, to his advantage. Um, isn't that sort of what what was driving a lot of that back in the nineties? And um, and how do you combat that caricature? Uh, the, the, so the, it was a caricature, although like anything, you can find examples of it. Right. So Reagan had his welfare queen. She was a real person. She actually from around here or, or did a lot of her queening around here. <laughs> but uh, the uh, that was, you know, that was a hot caricature uh, uh, that, that didn't describe the whole population. And it was true that some of the programs needed to be improved. You know, nobody was in love with AFDC, right, which was the old welfare program. Uh, it really wasn't targeted towards helping people get ahead through work. In fact, it punished work. Um, so it's always much, much more complicated and much, much more individualized than you get in political discourse. Uh, but, it, it, so, but it was a handy political strategy, I think, to, um, uh, you know, to, to serve an ideology of smaller government, lower taxes, uh, pro-business, uh, entrenched, uh, maybe rear guard action of, uh, the white community that isn't comfortable with more diversity in the country as that began to grow. And, you know, we're heading towards a majority minority country. Um, and so, um, you know, it becomes a uh, it becomes a useful politics, I think, to demonize the poor and to blame the poor. Uh, we're going to take we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with John Bowman. So, uh, J. D. Vance was here, who wrote uh, that book, Hill, "Hillbilly Elegy," about sort of the, oh, the dystopia yeah. in uh, rural. Uh, yeah. communities and part of what uh, part of the political dynamic is this sense of a zero-sum game that people right. feel a sense of loss in these rural communities and are easily directed to immigrants to uh, inner city uh, folks uh, as a cause of of their uh Lost, but you work around the state, and you work in rural communities as well as yeah. urban communities. What's striking uh, to me, having read his book and, and uh, through other conversations, is the commonality of concerns and challenges that people are facing, whether it's in a uh, whether it's in some of some of these rural communities or the inner city of Chicago. Yeah, uh, this was a really interesting part of uh, my early career in Uptown. We talked about earlier in the late 70s, there was a large population of uh, rural whites uh, called hillbillies at the time, but they, in, in Uptown, that was a big part of the mm -hmm. population there. Uh, and I had many, many clients, uh, you know, coal miners who, who couldn't work anymore because of black lung disease and, or their mind closed or whatever. But um, and uh, there's a 
tremendous commonality. The cases were the same. The grievances were the same. The behaviors were the same. Uh, and so what drives the wedge there, I think, is, uh, again, the, that it's a, a productive politics, right? And you, you, can, uh, you can cater to uh, the self-worth notions of people by making them feel like they're at least better than some other people, right? Um, or that uh, even as someone's fortunes are going down the tubes, you can get their support by making them think he is a Marlboro man or, uh, you know, a rugged individualist. Um, and so I, I too, I, I trace that to uh, an unfortunate, uh, but an unfortunately effective politics of division and uh, scapegoating and sort of bitterness uh, I see it. I do see it as kind of a rearguard action. There's parts of the country where uh, it doesn't work as well. Um, I think one of the things that Clinton was probably good at. I I, I was not a supporter of his on some of his stuff, but uh, was his uh, attempt at least to talk to that part of the population, maybe because of where he came from in Arkansas and who he was and his own heritage. Right. No, I think that that's true. And I think uh, it'll be interesting to see in now that we're in the Trump era, if leadership emerges that can um, appeal to people's common concerns and values and uh, interests, uh, as opposed to mining their uh, mining their divisions. Let's go back to 1976-77. You've moved over to the Shriver Center uh, now you're continuing your work uh, down in Springfield. Yeah, in 96, 97. Right. right. Didn't I say that? 76. Oh, sorry. That's okay. I'm just now I'm remembering our co-ed basketball game. <laughs> it's 96, 97. And um, you, you, uh, you're working on welfare reform because yeah. each state has to take the federal legislation and craft it um, – Exactly. In its own... Like the recent experience with the Affordable Care Act. It was the same thing with the welfare reform law. Actually, it was one of the, the restrictions or the, or the you know, forbidden things for legal aid lawyers to do was to work on welfare reform. It's another reason why we left federally funded legal aid in Chicago and started the Shriver Center. But yes, that was a huge project in 96 and 97. Uh, and immediately one of the leaders there was Obama. Who had just been elected to the legislature. This, yeah. He was a freshman yes. legislator, and he was assigned a leadership role to try and shape this uh, legislation. Yes. What were your impressions of him when you first met him? Well, he was very much like uh, the House counterpart, also from around here, Barbara Flint Curry. Mm -hmm. uh, both of them incredibly smart, incredibly quick studies, uh, and with a set of sort of underlying values and priorities that was really very compatible with what we were trying to do on behalf of people in poverty. So, um, uh, and the other thing that uh, Obama had was a good sense for how to navigate the politics of his caucus. 
Right. So he he got along very well with the leader, uh, uh, Emil Jones. He got along very well with the chair of the important committee that would handle this, uh, Margaret Smith, who was at the in the twilight of her career. And, <laughs> that was a, that's a but he didn't euphemism. embarrass her and he didn't. Uh, but he helped her. Right. Mm-hmm. And she sort of gave him the leadership of it, the de facto leadership. of it. Yeah. He also. Uh, and you worked with him on a range of issues during that time. Yeah. I, I think people, because because of uh, the kind of partisan uh, divide that he met when he became president, uh, it was a, uh, his history was lost. Uh, but he he had a genius for working across party lines in the legislature. He did, and he was very conscious and interested in that whether the spotlight was on it or not, because it was the path to get things done. His first years in the Senate, were, they were uh, the Democrats were in the minority, and the Senate was dominated by a pretty hard right, uh, you know, ex-Marine, Pate Phillip, mm-hmm. uh, an unabashed, uh, you know, kind of bigot, I'll, call, I'll say that. Uh, he was proud of it. I don't think he'd mind or sue me for it. Uh <laughs> The uh, and at so least have was, a hard time winning the suit. <laughs> right. It was hard to uh, it was hard for for a Democrat to get things done. Although it, by working with the dominant Democrats in the in the House and finding a way to compromise with the Republicans in the Senate, you could get things done. So I think it was very pragmatic. Mm-hmm. It was a sort of type of idealism where. It's not enough to take a stand and and be known for it, but you want to also move the ball. Yeah, well, this done. is a this is an ongoing debate in progressive politics. Oh gosh, yes, I get it in the neck on this a lot. <laughs> I'm sure you do, yeah, because you're pragmatic, yeah. and and yet you you very much operate on the progressive side, yeah, uh, of the of the debate. But uh, it strikes me, you know, I I used to uh, I had these discussions when I worked in government and we were trying to pass the Affordable Care Act and there were those who said, well, we shouldn't pass the Affordable Care Act unless it had a uh, public option Mm -hmm. and couldn't get a public option. There weren't the votes to pass the Affordable Care Act with a public option. And there were people who said we shouldn't pass the law at all. And I bump into people all the time who were helped by the Affordable Care Act and in some cases their lives saved by the Affordable Care Act. And I, I think to myself, how how would that have been right to say to those people, you know, we could have helped you, but it wasn't good enough, so we didn't? I think it's, uh, I think you get within the sort of four corners or, or the, to, to change the, the math analogy, a, 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 a bubble of an argument uh, where you sort of lose touch. This is probably characteristic of capital cities everywhere, mm-hmm. and certainly Washington, but you lose touch with the actual impact of what's going to happen and the analysis of whether a, a compromise is worth doing or not is corrupted sort of by the, the egos and, and uh, uh, emotions of a debate, of a, of a legislative process. Right mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and and the politics. That well, uh, well, the politics as well, because as you said, th- these things can be exploited. Yeah, and sometimes for short-term political gain, it's it's better to lose 
by standing on the altar of absolutism yes. than it is to win by yes. uh, and, and, and achieving a compromise that moves the ball forward but may not be everything that you want. I, I never forget that uh, the, the Nixon plan to have a guaranteed minimum income was defeated from the left. Uh <laughs> In uh, because it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the other thing about the Affordable Care Act debate that was fascinating was the um, that it was cloaked in the interests of the middle class uh, by uh, by President Obama and and the others who were for it. Yet, from my point of view, it is, and I think this wasn't law this wasn't a secret but it wasn't the way it was advocated it was the most important anti-poverty thing since the war on poverty in 50 years by far you know 16 million people got eligible for medicaid who weren't medicaid never covered all poor people this filled that gap in finally right uh and now you've got uh sheriff dart with his jail population who are eligible for Mental health services, or you know, they were all uninsured. Yeah, you know, uh, and maybe they should. You know, you could get people uh, to succeed in the workforce. You can get it. You keep them out of the criminal justice system. You can get them help. Uh, you can reduce the stress in families because you have access to health care. What uh, is what, huge? What, what is the impact of a year of the Trump administration on? Uh, on health care and on the uh, impacts of the Affordable Care Act. Obviously, that aspect of the Affordable Care Act has not been uh, yet. impacted yet. There's there's major threats to Medicaid in the actually in the pass, passage of the tax bill because by raising the deficit, it's going to it's going to add a powerful argument to drive spending cuts. And right in the crosshairs there will be Medicaid and food stamps and the earned income credit and things like that. Um, the, so most of the impact uh, has been on the middle class parts of the Affordable Care Act, the private insurance parts of it, uh, and the area where it would have been good to have a public option to mm-hmm. keep to keep costs for reasons under that are now clear. Uh, yeah, and, and the uh, uh, so the cynical thing that's happening is that the subsidies are being pulled out of that uh, for for the out of pocket costs of people, um, and that's gonna that's gonna get. Uh, that's going to keep healthier people out of, you know, they're just going to go uninsured, which will keep, which will raise the the average cost of the insured people because only the six people have insurance, and the costs will spiral. Uh, so that's that's what's hanging fire right now in uh, the Affordable Care Act. Just returning to Medicaid for a second, there was a proposal, one of the repeal and replace proposals, uh, the uh, uh, the the. Uh, Lindsey Graham uh, proposal was it Graham Kennedy? Uh, but that, that, but that it 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 block granted Medicaid. Oh, the block grant for Medicaid yeah. is an immense mistake, a huge bill of goods. Um, the re- and this is the ominous uh, sound of President Trump saying next we're going to do welfare reform because they like to harken back to that time in '96 when welfare was turned into a block grant. It's completely different for Medicaid. So that was a big the Republicans. Well, explain that. that. Explain was, because we, we sort of we we dashed through welfare reform in ninety six yeah. and ninety seven. And you sort of intimated before that you thought that there was a need for welfare reform yes. to put a more of an emphasis on work and work right. opportunities. 
to oh, yeah and uh to understand so and and uh what happened in welfare reform was that it was turned into a block grant which meant that the state would get a set sum of money to create whatever program it wanted for poor children and their adult caretakers uh so actually states had the freedom to do a lot of things better than they did before and Illinois did. That was some of the stuff we worked on. What were on. the kinds of things that you did? Well, so, for example, under AFDC, if you got a job, you would almost immediately get cut off of assistance because you had your income was higher than the assistance. Um, under the uh, new regime called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, uh, we were able to persuade the state to adopt a rule that would would only gradually reduce a grant and keep you uh, and phase you out of assistance as your income rose towards the poverty level. These are all people below the poverty level, by the way. Um, And so it was more nurturing of work and more um, used the, the grant to subsidize the wage, which was usually low, uh, in a way that sort of weaned people towards employment. Uh, full uh, employment, you know, without assistance. But but the the proponents of uh, this Medicaid block granting say, well, we're going to give states well. So what happened in flexibility. in welfare reform was that um, the 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 block grant was enough money because the states just cut people off of assistance. Um, you can't just cut people off of Medicaid. Right. Because they're still going to get sick. They're still going to go to the hospital. They're still going to get what's, you know, what will then be uncompensated care in hospitals and emergency rooms and clinics. And that drives the costs up for everyone, which is, you know, that's one of the reasons. Or drives hospitals under. That's a big concern in rural areas. Yeah. And uh, so it's not you're talking about um what the block grant does is it caps the federal share of spending. Medicaid, the way it works now, is a very good blend of state and federal funding. And if the system costs increase, the federal share comes along with it. So if you have, for example, a hurricane, a great recession, an epidemic, or a new therapy, all reasons why you might want to spend more on health care, uh, or why more people are eligible for health care, um, under a block grant, the federal share is capped. All of the burden of expansion is on the states. If the states don't undertake that expansion, then you've got untreated medical c- situations. If they do take it, they either have to raise taxes to meet the new costs that were previously covered by the feds, or uh, you cannibalize other parts of the state budget. Uh, So you'll be spending less on education, on higher education, on roads and bridges, the other parts of the state. You know, so the Medicaid block grant is not only a disaster for the health care system, it's a disaster for the entire state budget um, because of the way it it puts a vice to uh, unmet medical need. You talked about the tax bill that was just uh, passed yeah. uh, as kind of a ticking time bomb in this regard. Yes. Uh, you anticipate uh, that that this will be the next fight? Yeah. 
I think the fight, and, and, it, and it'll be a fight not just on Medicaid, but on other forms of assistance. I look for an attack on disability benefits, including disability benefits for children. Uh, tightening of the screws on the SNAP program, it used to be called food stamps. Uh, there's talk of making that a block grant, which is, an, which is a complete mistake for states because it's currently entirely federally funded. Why would you agree to a block grant on federal funds? Millions of dollars come into the state of Illinois, for example, to meet nutrition needs. And if if that stops or is capped, the needs don't go away. But the duty will fall to states and localities to either fund it or to deal with the consequences. Yeah. the uh, um, These that, are just cost shifts. Right. Now, the food stamps has become sort of emblematic. This is a... Uh, Newt Gingrich said uh, under Barack Obama, we've become a food stamp nation. That was heavy with inference. Um, That's the, uh, I think you read Welfare Queen there. Mm -hmm. You know, that's food stamp nation means uh, people who don't deserve our respect. Uh, You know, it's those other folks again. And yet the irony is that uh, the majority of people on food stamps as as well as I believe uh, public assistance generally are not as implied minority, right? And also most of them work, or they're uh, seniors on fixed incomes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, the other aspect of poverty is that there's a sizable population of people who are poor who are not able to work their way off of you know up. Because they're old, because they're disabled, because they're children, because they're caretakers of family members who are in those conditions. Uh, and so, you know, part of part of the fight against poverty is about quality of life for people who are poor, in addition to quality of opportunity for people who are able to, to work their way up. You know, Robert Kennedy was, even in the 60s, uh, critical of uh and raise concerns about welfare and public assistance right. programs because he felt that they would become um, entombing, as it were, that they right. would. Uh, I mean, was that a – you sort of hinted at this before. Was that a, a, a valid concern? I, I think it's a, a – yeah, it's a legitimate uh, – it is a legitimate concern, and you do have to find a, a balance. Uh it, because uh, you want you don't you want people to have opportunities to work their way up. Uh, you want some pressure on people to do that. Um, most of the pressure is from people themselves, though, because they, it's just a miserable lifestyle, right? It's just not. It, it's never been anything but. Uh, uh, Hard scrabble, even with these benefits. Uh, so, if you have a chance to work your way up, most people are uh, welcome that. Most people are much prefer it working, even if it's sort of the same amount of money. They like they like the view of themselves as workers. Uh, so there is, you know, there is sort of moral hazard. It's called sometimes, you, but you have to find a balance. It's not you can't. Uh, you can't go entirely one way or the other, and you can't, it's really, really dangerous to generalize because it's such an individualized thing. 
We're going to take another short break, and we'll be right back uh, with John Bowman. You've been uh, involved in some really landmark legal cases to protect the rights of uh, of the poor and people living in poverty. Not just uh, so; it's not just working through the legislative process, but working uh, through the courts. One involved Medicaid itself here uh, in Illinois. Talk uh, talk a little bit about that and the role that the courts play in uh, yeah. providing some equity for. Yeah, pool. and that, that's really an important thing to think about right now, um, because um, you, when you have things like civil rights laws or when you have things like uh, eligibility for benefit programs, um, that they're certainly in the case of civil rights laws, but in the benefit programs too, they're not necessarily self-executing, right? They, they have to be enforced. Uh, especially when uh, people in power sort of wander in the wrong direction. So when a state takes billions and billions of dollars uh, in federal money to run a Medicaid program, with it comes certain strings. Not a whole lot. There's a lot of flexibility. But certain strings are attached. And so for children who get Medicaid, one of the strings that is attached is you have to provide quality uh well child care, you know, so care for the child when he's not sick, uh, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics catalog of what should be done with a child to be healthy. Um, and then if a condition is found, you detect it early and you treat it right away. Uh, and you provide whatever treatment is necessary. So that's called the, the, the tongue twister is early and periodic screening diagnosis and treatment. Um, EPSDT. So uh, this... For those who are following along. Yeah, exactly. So children who are covered by Medicaid are supposed to get this array of services. Um, And uh, we were finding out that, uh, and this was in the 90s already, that children covered by Medicaid in Illinois were not getting it. And so we went to court to ensure that children covered by Medicaid would get the services they could, were required to get. Uh, the state denied it. They said, oh, we have a perfectly good system. We can't force people to use it. Uh, and we did uh, computer analysis through an expert that showed that uh, of the children in Cook County covered by Medicaid who were supposed to get six doctor visits in the first year of life after leaving the hospital, uh, the, the uh, some, just under half of them got none, and seventy five percent of them got one or none. Um, and so similar types of proof, overwhelming proof. Uh, we had foster parents. And this was this uh, as a result of of lack of access, or was it as a result of lack of interest? It was lack of access. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we had powerful testimony from foster parents who had natural children who had private insurance and foster children who had Medicaid insurance. And the same doctors would not give appointments to the Medicaid kids who gave appointments to the hmm. privately insured kids. And that's because the reimbursement rates were too low. The hassle was too high. It was just a headache for doctors to participate in Medicaid. Um, and so uh, the the But it was built around access. It wasn't built around rates. And this suit went on for years. Yeah. 
And while it was dormant throughout the 90s because Illinois was considering a massive managed care reform, which it then dropped at the end of the 90s, uh, when, um, and then uh, so we reinvigorated the suit and we went to trial in 2004 at a month-long trial uh, and won. And then uh, we settled the case after winning it, settled the relief uh, and avoided an appeal. And you've been back in court uh, periodically well, yes. when the state has... Uh... So two years ago, when the state went into its budget impasse, um, Illinois had a, a showdown between rec- its Republican governor and Democratic legislature mm-hmm. around the budget. So we went two years without a budget. Uh, when that impasse began, there's a constitutional provision in Illinois that says if you don't have a budget, you can't spend money. And so we went to court in this same case and combined it with another case to make it statewide uh, to ensure ongoing payment of Medicaid during the budget impasse. Uh, We ended up with a mandatory order that the state had to spend almost $600 million a month in Medicaid and an additional $3 billion in the coming fiscal year to make up arrearages. that incredibly explicit order that's very hard to get from a federal court. Um, and that's what kept the hospitals open. We were told that we were within a week of shutting down Roseland Hospital and within a week or two of shutting down Mount Sinai Hospital if we hadn't gotten these court orders. And this is the kind of work that you do at the Shriver Center. You talked about being a national clearinghouse. Right. How much work do you do with with peers in other states yeah. uh, to, to, to do this kind of work and to form alliances uh, on a national level. We, that's, that's, uh, we're in the midst of a strategy to build multi-state networks of groups that do in their state what we do in Illinois. So we have one we call the Legal Impact Network that now has 33 states, 35 groups from 33 states. Um, and we're exploring how to. Uh, we're, we're al- it's already really a vibrant kind of peer network where folks are copying each other and getting solutions from each other. Uh, and we're exploring how to take concerted action. Uh, we, for example, deployed this group in support of the effort to defeat the repeal and replace of the uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, we're looking at uh, access of immigrants to public benefits. Part of the Trump uh, administration's attack on immigration has been uh, discrimination against immigrants and access to basic benefits. Talking about uh, legal immigrants, undocumented workers? Both. Mm-hmm. Uh, undocumented people are, are actually un- ineligible for most mm-hmm. forms of assistance. Right. But because of that, there's a lot of families that are mixed, some legal, some not, some citizens, some uh, legal permanent residents, some undocumented. Um, they're they're all scared. They're all being turned away from uh, benefits bureaucracies around the country because of uh, uh, sort of this concept. The, the there's a uh, there's a sense of permission in the country to discriminate against immigrants in general. So is that um, becoming more of your work? It is becoming more of our work. Uh, we, we concentrate on the poverty aspects of it, mm-hmm. um, which are considerable. Um, 
And the other, you know, another growing part of the work is, and where we're working in multi-state alliances, is around this matter of the criminal justice system, the new Jim Crow issues, criminal records, uh, collateral consequences of convictions where you can't get a job or you can't get housing. Um, there, there was a great set of um, guidances and regulatory moves by HUD on, in the last Obama years to make it clear that if you if you overly use criminal records to deny housing to people, that can and will be found to be a, a violation of the Fair Housing Act because of the disparate racial impact. Uh, there's signals now that the the Trump HUD department might roll that back, but um, if that's what the law says, that law is enforceable in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the federal government and the Justice Department is going to get out of the business of enforcing the civil rights laws, it's up to private enforcement, and that's going to become a bigger part of our work. And how uh, concerned are you about uh, the receptivity of the courts to these arguments, uh, given the nature of the appointments that well, President Trump is making to the courts? That's a problem. Um, but I th- we have found, I think, that, uh, first of all, it isn't, you know, uh, it's one of the reasons that elections matter. <laughs> People need to register and vote. Uh, but uh, it takes a long time to, to turn a judiciary around. And it's also true that um, even with uh, uh, politically uh, conservative judges, uh, m- many times when you're supposed to win, you win. Um Meaning if the law's on your side, you win. Which says something about the the, the, the quality of the judiciary. Yeah, and it's still, it isn't, you know, uh, you get high-profile cases in the appeals courts and the Supreme Court where it appears pretty obvious that there's politics at play, or at least uh, uh, a a a certain political worldview. Um, but in the lower courts and in the sort of warp and woof of, of um, the trial courts and, you know, the, the fact-finding process and the, the logic, the internal logic of litigation, um, you know, good, good lawyers who become judges, even if they're conservative politically, are going to do the right thing with the law. Uh, you might lose around the edges, but generally speaking you know if you're supposed to win you win or you you really have a good chance to win uh and then around the country there are very good state court systems uh where you can opt to uh, take a case to a state court so i was co-counsel in a case in new mexico for example where we ended up uh, with a ruling that found unconstitutional under the state constitution the exclusion of farm and ranch workers from the workers' comp system. And it was the only reason for that exclusion is because you could. They were helpless. They were politically helpless, and the ranchers and farmers were powerful. Uh, and uh, th- there was a calculation that the federal uh, circuit court, uh, the Tenth Circuit that sits in Denver, was not congenial to cases like this, decided under the U.S. Constitution, so it was brought in New Mexico. Uh, which was a, a, a yet a better chance. So Sergeant Shriver, for whom the Shriver Center is named and who was a benefactor of the original benefactor of the Shriver Center, was an architect yeah. of the war on poverty. Yes. Fifty years later, 
uh, and you, I'm sad to say, have been involved in a, a great deal of that history in your work, uh, youthful as you are. Uh, <laughs> give a, a give your state of the state of the union as it relates to the war on poverty. Um, the war on poverty has been actually immensely successful. Uh, you know, in, it was initially, you know, sort of shockingly successful. In the late 50s, poverty was around 22%. By the early 70s, it was 11 It's now settled in around 14 or 15 Without the war on poverty, including the great society programs, Medicaid, Medicare, food stamps, earned income credit, those things, without those, the, the poverty rate would be twice as high. Right, so it's it's not right and it's not fair to say that there was that it failed. It's succeeding right now. It hasn't completely succeeded, but it's helping. But we live in a world now that is much different in terms of our economy. Yes, uh, a lot of those blue collar jobs that used to pay a good salary are gone. Yes, a lot of retail jobs are now disappearing. Yeah. Uh, the the availability of work for people at the low end of the education scale of the uh, you know income scale is is much less plentiful. That's a, that's a huge problem, and it's a one it's a big feature of poverty right now is that more and more people in poverty actually work because those are the jobs our economy's producing at the lower end, uh, and it, so uh, the, the, there's plenty so of working, work but the jobs to be done. Don't pay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They pay minimum wage, and the minimum wage is low. Uh, they, they have their part-time. Uh, they're sporadic. Um, they're, they compete with family obligations, uh, you know, child care, getting a kid home safe from school, uh, et cetera. Um, and, and so, uh, th- you know, those are the problems we have now. You know, we're still working on them. And when I retire someday, another 50 years from now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you'll hand off a, a set of problems. That, you know, if you're in this to end poverty, you're going to burn out and, and you know, it, it, you don't understand it well. There's, uh, there's always going to be poor people because there's always going to be a spectrum and there's always going to be people on the bottom. Some will be will be there because of circumstances beyond their control. Some will be there because they're they're being kept down on purpose by other parts of the of the of the society. Um, so there's going to be work to do for to, to to have justice for them and to improve their quality of life and upward mobility. That changes. It morphs. Uh, you can look back though and say it's much better now than it was. Right. Everybody's got health insurance, health coverage, if you're in a state that at least that's adopted the Affordable Care Act that didn't have a governor running for president or something. <laughs> uh, the, um, you know, you have a chance to get nutrition. Uh, you have a better reach of, you know, sort of Internet and basic utilities, heat and electricity. I mean, there was a time when. You know, when the, all this stuff started in, in the 30s that, uh, you know, a lot of the poor people didn't even have electricity or indoor plumbing. Now, now I, I ask you this as we close, knowing that for almost 40 years, every single baseball season, <laughs> you would tell me at the beginning of the season that you felt good about the Cubs. Yeah. And they finally did win the World Series. <laughs> right. 
it took a very long time. But uh, I mean, are you are you optimistic about the future? Do you see uh, uh, some of these big problems being solved in, in such a way that creates more uh, social equity for for, yeah. for poor people? Yes, and and. Uh, you take on these big things and, uh, you know, and, and things big and small, but the bigger ones in particular that seem such a heavy lift, uh, you take those on and after, uh, you know, we have this saying that there's no defeats, there's multi-year initiatives, <laughs> but the, the uh, uh, and, and we've won a bunch of those and you can see how it's improved things for people and for some subset of people in poverty, that did the trick. It got them over the hump. Um, and and they were able to figure the rest of it out for themselves, right? But the, um, uh, so you can, and you can't succeed in this if you don't believe it, it can win because you have to sell it that way to get people to work on it and to get politicians to believe in it and ultimately to, to do things that their careers depend on. Well, you've... Uh done a splendid job of that for a very long time for which uh, everyone should be i love the cup metaphor that's great. <laughs> everyone uh, should be grateful uh, john bowman shriver center uh we uh, applaud the work uh that you do and uh, i'm always happy to we've had we've spent probably years of our lives in conversation with each other and yeah. i look forward to m- many more Thank you, and thanks for for this. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.